0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home In My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. In this episode, we'll be discussing spouse exchange among the North American Inuit societies. From my college days, I recalled Inuit wife-sharing as one area we studied in cultural anthropology courses. From my studies, I recalled a few things. First, borrowing and lending in Inuit culture, I was taught, was based on necessity. The climate was harsh, and if someone was in need, it was not acceptable to turn down a request for aid without compelling justification. If I have two pairs of boots, and you are in need of boots, I must lend you a pair of boots. However, if they are my only pair, I may decline the request. In an environment where someone could die for want of a pair of boots, this was part of social protocol. I recalled an odd story about one Inuit man who saved a young girl from death by starvation, who eventually married her. He was shamed because he wouldn't allow anyone else to have sex with her, and after her death he continued to bring her offerings. The story was interesting because it was unique. I recall learning that European explorers, upon finding out you could request sexual access to an Inuit man's wife, apparently abused the privilege and were considered greedy in their requests. That was the sum of my recollection on that aspect of Inuit culture. So I had to do some reading to refresh my memory and update my understanding of this particular institution of traditional Inuit culture. An anthropologist named Lawrence Henning gathered data in the 1960s. He noted there were rules and structure applied to the practice and suggested it was, in part, a method of enhancing social connections. As a woman, I find it interesting that when a society shares wives – they are necessarily sharing husbands as well. Henning mentions another anthropologist, Spencer, who labeled his paper on the topic spouse exchange, which I think is more appropriate and accurate, and a less biased description. It's interesting this type of activity in the West is also commonly known as wife-swapping. The language belies the male-centric culture describing the situation, as though it is an agreement between men and husbands without regard to consent or agency of the women partners, even though that agency is in play. It was interesting to me, as I read Henning's paper, that he noted the idea of this situation being non-existent elsewhere. It reminds me of the prior episodes where similar situations of multiple partners are explored, and how some recent modern anthropologists have come to connect these dots and see that these multiple partner experiences – that are so often recorded as being so rare among the disparate societies, have mounted to a large body of evidence that it's a common part of the structures found in many different areas of the world, and not nearly as uncommon as previously promoted. As I so often repeat, the expansion of Western culture, which necessarily carried with it Christian biases, has doomed us to a limited set of data points from which to draw our own opinions about human nature and relationships. When you're shown a range of options to choose from, the work is easy. When the options are dismantled and no longer shown, the subject now has the extra step of reinventing the option before choosing. This is an effective way of limiting options, as I talked about in the series on religious indoctrination. By deleting options, I give a huge advantage to whatever options are left to choose from. And in this mode, Henning points out that this practice among most Inuit societies was effectively abolished in the 1890s by Christian missionaries. I will note here that Henning's paper includes some claims of which I'm skeptical. When I studied anthropology, it was sometimes the case that when a researcher operated on reported accounts rather than first-hand field research, interpretations could be distorted. Henning's paper is an older one, and unfortunately, so were many of the papers I was able to locate. I recall our professors warning us about this possibility, and in one course we read field note accounts of events prior to viewing actual footage of the events themselves. It demonstrated to us how even a professional researcher observing an event firsthand may have a distorted perspective of what's actually happening. It also showed us the difference between a recorded description and reality. Words the researcher uses may conjure images in the mind of the reader that are not what the researcher intends to convey. And that's as much of a warning as I'm going to provide. We can leave it at that. One way to recognize an older paper is the use of the term Eskimo rather than Inuit. In most of the older papers, the label Eskimo is used. This was a label used by those outside Inuit society, which translates roughly to raw flesh eaters since the traditional Inuit diet consisted mainly or even solely of raw animal product, including large quantities of fat, which is a story for another day, and one that challenges Western beliefs and attitudes about human diets and nutritional balance. But back to the point about labels. The people themselves use the label Inuit. And like very many traditional cultures, the term translates simply to the people. I was hoping that reading further on the issue of Inuit-spouse exchange, I'd come to recall more or gain some better understanding, but outside of the fact that it happened, I'm not finding much in current literature to add to the vague understanding I had when I was in college. Even as I'm reading the following quoted material from a paper entitled, A Good Spouse is Hard to Find, Marriage, Spouse Exchange, and Infatuation Among the Copper Inuit, by Pamela R. Stern and Richard G. Condon, the quote reads as follows. There is a great deal of evidence in the ethnographic literature to suggest that Inuit husbands and wives had strong, affective ties to one another, although the high-value Inuit placed on emotional restraint could mask the expression of these feelings to the native outside observer. While sexual attraction and infatuation could serve as the basis for pair bonding, it was unlikely that this was the rule. The demands of the harsh Arctic ecosystem resulted in both high mobility and low population density. The scarcity of suitable marriage partners and the demand that young men and women make a rapid transition from childhood to adult responsibilities effectively limited opportunities for courting behavior or individual choice in pair bonding. In short, a good spouse was hard to find. Traditional Inuit marriage, however, arranged, had a particularly interesting feature institutionalized spouse exchange. Many scholarly treatments of traditional Inuit marriage and sexual relations have attempted to make sense of this practice. To Westerners accustomed to thinking of extramarital sexual activity as necessarily illicit, the widespread acceptance of socially sanctioned extramarital sexual activity, apparently devoid of jealousy, is difficult to comprehend. Unfortunately, purely materialist explanations of Inuit marriage and spouse exchange serve to oversimplify the complex sexual, psychological, economic, and political motivations of Inuit couples in establishing spouse exchange relationships. Indeed, the personal motivations for creating such alliances may have varied from one circumstance to another and from one spouse to another. Who is to say that infatuation with another spouse was not a critical motivating factor for many exchange relationships, even though they may have resulted in some kind of formal alliance? End quote. The authors go on to talk about differences between couples they interviewed and worked with during their field research. They note some of them were in marriages arranged by their parents, whereas some married despite opposition from their parents. Some of the couples got along well, while others seemed to have strained relationships. Another interesting observation recorded in the paper is that European Christian values influenced the Inuit in the region they studied to discontinue the spouse-exchange customs. However, sexual infidelity then emerged in the form of married partners engaging in sex with others, but without the framework of the exchange system. According to the authors, one elder described this evolution as an introduction of, quote, promiscuity, which he had never seen previously within the society. The elder's observation drives home the point about how different cultures view sexuality and sexual conduct. In pointing out mild forms of xenophobia, here is a good example of how our cultural biases are inserted in a judgment about another society's marriage practices. From a Western European perspective, the spouse-exchange system would appear to be scandalous. But to the Inuit, it was structured and represented propriety. In trying to force the Inuit to abandon their cultural traditions, Christian influence arguably made things worse. In 1988, when the researchers returned to the area for an updated census, they found marital separation and divorce were now much more common than they'd previously reported, another irony of a post-Christian era. It seems the West brought them both infidelity and divorce. And it goes without saying that, once again, we're looking at a social structure where paternity is tied to something other than biological ties to a child. Since there would be no way to guarantee paternity in a society where sexual behavior is not regulated to exclusive monogamy, marital ties to the birth mother would be the determining factor over biological paternity. I could go off on tangents with this, but the main point was to discuss the tradition of spouse exchange, and there doesn't seem to be a robust history to pull from. It can still serve, however, to provide another example of the flexibility of human social sexual structures and pair bonding. It serves to help us rethink our own assumptions about the human condition with regard to sexual and romantic relationships, our concept of jealousy, our narrow marriage structure as it's expressed in the West, and what the impact is on a species that is suited to so much relationship variation to be enculturated into exclusivity and monogamy, while alternatives are stigmatized and relegated to the shadows, or in some extreme cases, even outlawed entirely. I hope that one day our society will be mature enough to broadly respect and embrace human sexual proclivities and sexual expression. It would be interesting to entertain alternative views of parenthood as well. Our view in the West on family structure is narrow and inflexible, but we have seen some signs of change. Single parents are now more common, as is divorce. We acknowledge adoption and foster care as well as informal live-in arrangements. But without a doubt, our culture continues to cater to and center around mainly a nuclear family model. As usual, I've provided resources in the details for those who would like to do further reading on their own.